Tennis is one of the most popular sports around the world and there are plenty of people out there betting on it. This podcast gives you an edge over the market thanks to in-depth analysis from our expert guests. Welcome to Advantage Betters. Hello and welcome to another episode of Advantage Betters. Tennis is now back in full swing. After a hectic schedule, we were unable to get an episode out for the US Open, but we're here for the French and ready to give you some unique betting insight. Joining me today is two tennis betting experts. Firstly, Dan Weston of tennisratings.co.uk. How are you, Dan? Yeah, hi Ben, how are you? I'm good. I'm good, thank you. Um, We've also got a man who, he provides a constant stream of betting content online, NFL, basketball, general betting advice, and today we're talking tennis. Welcome back to the podcast, Drew Dinzik, aka Whale Kappa. Ben, thank you so much for having me back. Dan, so great to talk to you again. Hope you guys are all uh, safe and healthy and happy and enjoying uh, that we have tennis back in our lives. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. As I said, you two, you two are the tennis betting experts. I'll be here to ask a couple of questions, but I'm sure the, the discussion will be free-flowing between you two. But, I mean, plenty, of ha- plenty has happened since we last spoke and, and covered the Australian Open back at the start of the year. A lot of things that are a lot more important than sports and betting. We know that, but but now it's back. We're all excited. Everyone's looking for their angles and their their way to find value into events. And notably now the the French Open. I think the best place to start is obviously what's changed with tennis since COVID came along. A lot of sports have been dominated by talk about things like home field advantage or or a lack of home advantage not so prevalent in tennis but there are a couple of elements that will that will be impacted and are certainly worth noting from a betting point of view um the main one that's going to come up is obviously fitness this is now a, a point in the season i mean we would we'd never be playing the french now anyway but players would be really sharp now they'd be at prime levels of performance as it stands though they haven't really been able to play competitively for 6 months they they kind of dropped dropped in at the deep end with a grand slam. Then they're going straight into another with only one event in between. I guess the first question I want to ask is: Do you think lack of fitness is is something really to hone in in on for betters at the moment, or is it just a a level level playing field for everyone? Yeah, I mean it's a difficult one because I think that the men's in particular is such a, a real test of fitness in the five set grand slam format. You know, I think Alexander Zverev had played over 800 minutes in advance of uh, uh, well, in advance of the final. So you know, it's a, it's it's very difficult to to deal with that physically and then go back to back in two Grand Slams in quick succession. So what you generally find is that big name players, especially in the men's, don't play the week before a Grand Slam and they don't play the week after a Grand Slam, whereas obviously with this condensed schedule, we've seen something completely different. And is that similar thoughts for you, Drew? Yeah, I think in general, the fitness angle manifests more from a game to a match-to-match standpoint than kind of understanding the overall framework of the tour and the and you know people's uh, you know potential for uh, outrights. Uh, I guess I had a general thesis that the you know the players who were going through extended uh, you know five setters early on in the U.S. Open you could effectively write them off like you know the the fatigue that you would you know that you would um, accrue accumulate you know in rounds one two and three was going to be a huge detriment to you later in the tournament and that kind of inspired me to change my numbers a bit to where um, you know I was upweighting players who I felt like had a relatively high likelihood of three zero. Uh, early in the tournament, put me on a, a very decent price for Medvedev to win the third quarter, uh, which was um, probably one of my favorite tennis bets that I've made in a long time. Uh, and you know, he he, I think got through uh, without uh, without dropping a set, which was pretty nice. Um, but the overall the fitness uh, questions and the form questions, um, you can sort out pretty quickly any thesis you have about a given player's level and preparedness. Um, in, I would even say, just one match of watching. Great example will come from this Rome tournament engaging uh, Simona Halep, for instance. Um, she has, we, you know, we have yet to really see her um, 
you know, perform against some of the higher competition on the women's tour. Uh, she's currently the betting favorite to win the French Open, despite the fact that uh, we don't know uh, how she will especially match up against uh, some of the better players. And uh, she's coming off of a title in Prague, which is exciting. Um, but the players she played there, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't love, uh, you know, the, the least Mertens of the world in terms of their, um, you know, their clay form. Uh, so I don't know if it really told us much about how she's going to match up against the top players. So uh, I think um, to a degree, it will be fascinating to see if she can back up her uh, Prague title with a, a decent run here in Rome uh, to help solidify her as the true betting favorite for the French Open. And one of the one of the other kind of interesting angles or elements to look at in terms of fitness is you mentioned there, Drew, one way to conserve energy for the, whether it's a man winning three straight, three straight sets or the women doing it in two is to obviously not draw out those long matches or anything like that. But then the other side you could look at, and this is not to suggest that tennis players don't always try their absolute hardest in every point, but potentially we might see more now of those games or those sets that begin to kind of run away from players is there going to be that motivation to try and stick it out or is it a case of I'm 40 love down or or I'm six uh, five two down in this set let me like conserve the energy hold it in and, and really go for it in the next one do you think that's kind of maybe what we'll see you know, I, again, I kind of had the thesis that that was going to be the case in the U.S. Open. Uh, and it uh, that that bit me pretty hard uh, in rounds one and two, actually, because we saw more players come back from down 0-2 uh, than I think I've ever seen in a slam. Um, and granted, a number of them were betting favorites like uh, uh, Karin Hatchinoff in round one, for instance, or uh, Christian Garin is another example where, you know, these guys were down 0-2, uh, two players that they were better than. Uh, and rather than just kind of, you know, wave the white flag and say, okay, well, this was a good chance for me to kind of help, you know, re- recapture some fitness. They, uh, um, you know, they, they fought back, they fought hard, they put all their chips on the table, they expended all this energy and all this uh, effort to come back and win those matches. And uh, I think just in round one of the U.S. Open, there were something like four or five men who came back from down 0-2, uh, which I think uh, dispelled, uh, you know, some concerns from that I had, you know, definitely because the, the thesis I thought was pretty strong, which is, uh, you know, not it didn't feel like you got a, a sense that a lot of the players really wanted to be in New York anyway, <laughs> on top of the fact that, you know, you're you're in a best of five match down 0-2, you know, wave the white flag. Um, but sure enough, um, you know, the, the these guys are, are professional athletes. They're playing with pride. They were playing with intensity uh, and uh, the fighting spirit was there. So it's a, it I would expect that to um, to ramp up, if anything, uh, as we get into this uh, this next major. That's a hard no from Drew on that one, Dan. And as he said, plenty of data there to work with and suggest that this element of tanking or conserving energy might not be what people make out. Is there? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I don't really have a lot of, of like statistical evidence about that that type of thing because obviously it's, it's difficult to know. Whether, you know, in terms of whether players definitely tanked or not, but. Yeah, I mean, logically, you would think that like, with with this condensed schedule, there would be more of that. But it's it, you know, not necessarily match tanking, or, or perhaps there might be like say next week in like the warm up warm up event, the immediate week before. But it may be sets like you say, say if you're like two sets up, but you're like a break and so four one down in the third set, you might want to think, well, okay, well maybe we'll just you know regroup for set four kind of thing, you know, if, in, in the men's competition I'm talking about obviously. And but then you can also with with clay as well coming into the French Open points are longer and sometimes the sets are longer in terms of like the the minutes played and i think that that's going to be even more of a test you know than, than the u.s open but where the you know on hard court there tend to be shorter points and mm. um yeah also, I mean, going back to a couple of matches in the past for example in 2014 i remember a really notable one where andy murray came through a 12 10 final set against cole schreiber in round three of the french open and then end up playing Monfils in the quarterfinals. Was, was two sets up real quick, and then ended up getting dragged to five sets before he had to play Nadal in the semifinals. And he just had nothing left in the tank by that point. Uh, and he was, yeah, you know, he only won six games in the semifinal, hence Nadal that year. So 
it, it does have that impact, and I think players regarding should guard well against that. You know, obviously, you can't necessarily control it that much, but you've got to be conscious of the fact that you, you know try and get off off court as quickly as you can. These early rounds of grandstands is massive. I mean, it's it's obviously something that a lot of people are going to be think, thinking of uh, ahead of. I mean, obviously for the US and still for the French. I guess it's about trying to find those angles that potentially people maybe haven't explored to a to a certain degree. And one of the things we kind of chatted about briefly offline was this, the restrictions around the people that are allowed in and around the events due to this bubble type approach. I'm not sure exactly of what the rule is. I know it's kind of a couple of people at the hotel during it, maybe one or two people to court, but there's there's obviously going to be a real drop in numbers for a coaching team or support staff for, for some of the players that are going to be involved. Um, Dan, I'll come to you first. Do you think that's something that the market is taking into consideration? Is it something that needs to be considered? Um, I think it should be considered to some extent, but it's very, again, it's very difficult to know the personal circumstances behind each player. But we sort of spoke a bit offline, didn't we, about this? And I think that it could potentially be a leveller in terms of, you know, some of the big name players, they have like a complete entourage of players going round with the support staff going round with them. Uh, and and the smaller players never really had that. You know, we saw, already saw in one of the warm-up events that a couple of players had to pull out um, because of uh, their physio, their shared physio had, had was tested positive for COVID. So obviously if they're sharing a physio, you know, players like Djokovic, for example, they're not going to share a physio with people. So in the the, um, the smaller players have got that sort of general disadvantage generally, but now it's a bit of a leveler, I think, where everyone's going to have that like sort of limited support staff, if that makes sense. Drew, is that something, I mean, I know you're a guy, in-depth research and stuff like that. Are, are you able to look into who these guys have got as their, like, player coach, as, as Dan said, physio, I mean, nutritionists, uh, psychologists, all this kind of stuff. Did, is that information out there? Or do you think that's something that people can, can get access to and, and maybe how important will it be? Oh, it's, it's, it's not very well um, publicized for sure. You have to do some very serious digging, but I can tell you that you can make a fair assumption. Um, and and you know, to go back to your original question, I don't think the market really is assessing or, or valuing this to this point. Um, but the, the fair assumption to be made if you were to try to model this out is that career earnings uh, is a one-to-one correlation with number of, of people on your staff. And to the degree that you're limited, uh, this is more likely going to affect the top players on tour, more likely to impact the likes of the Djokovic's and the, the, the Dolls uh, than it is some of the guys who are just coming up, um, especially those who are coming up from some of the... Uh, uh, you know, from country countries where you know you maybe uh, do, don't have an enormous uh, support staff or you know huge financial uh, backing for for your professional uh, career. Um, I also would think, I mean, and you know, to whatever degree this helps level the playing field for the French Open, especially on the men's side, will be great for us as fans of tennis because right now it is so top heavy, uh, and anything that can be. Uh, you know, can be used as an opportunity to make some of these matches go longer, give anyone a fighting chance against Nadal or, or Djokovic in this tournament is going to be awesome. Um, because right now they are eating up such an enormous margin at the top of this market uh, that, uh, you know, it's, it's almost it's almost going to be throwing darts to try to hit uh, any kind of value uh, across the uh, the ATP side. Um, I will, I, I guess, just kind of one final point and or prediction about um you know, what, what to expect here. <clears throat> we had a lot of commentary during the Western and Southern Open from the players and from, you know, players' teams about how fast the conditions were. Everybody was complaining, oh, it's so fast. And, you know, and and the uh, I didn't see a ton of data to support that things were all that much faster than a normal U.S. Open. Um, and I think it was more of a reflection of just being having been so long since players had been playing at true... Uh, game speed it just seemed fast in a relative sense uh, and I think after kind of a couple of rounds a couple of matches for some of the top players it played a lot more like a typical U.S. Open I felt uh, and to that degree we're going now from a medium slow fast court onto European clay um, we should see just some outstanding tennis really this uh, this um, you know the Rome Open this week and the French Open uh, which starts next week should be 
uh, just spectacularly fun to watch. Uh, I'm, and, and, you know, these guys, they haven't logged uh, the normal um, amount of minutes on court for 2020 that they normally would this time of year. No one's really carrying uh, kind of nagging injuries outside of a couple relatively well-known uh, players. We're reintroducing guys like Nadal and Stan Bavrinka who have we didn't get to see at the U.S. Open. So the quality of the field is going up. Um, I just think overall, uh, this, uh, the French open is probably setting up to be one of the better, better, uh, tournaments, uh, that we've had in a long time. Yeah. The, the quality of the field there is also one of the, the kind of interesting notes I had to, to pick up on. Cause you said about, did players really want to be in New York? The ones that were there, I mean, there was obviously quite a lot of players that weren't even there, um, made the decision not to play for their own reasons. Some people couldn't play because of, of injury concerns. But I think one thing that, that can't be argued is, although you said that the, the quality is going up, it's still quite a, not threadbare, but it's it's nowhere near what we'd normally expect in terms of the, the level of quality event, in terms of the individuals taking part. Um, is it is it something now, I mean, even at the US, I, th- I can't remember what the... the um, the record was but it was something like 15 years or something crazy it was the first grand slam quarterfinals where novak federer and nadal hadn't been involved was that born out of do you think the the lack of quality within the competition i mean obviously two of the three guys weren't even there um but is it something that kind of moving forward for the french those outsiders that potentially might have been on the fringes before they might now get a little bit of an easier run. They might have an easier chance to get to those later rounds and ultimately win the whole thing. Is, is that something that you're thinking about? I'm hopeful. I, I guess the, the, there is a double-edged sword, right? Because you had, um, you had some new faces, some new uh, names that made it into the later rounds. Uh, you, it was exciting to see kind of the next generation get some exposure at the grand slam level. Um, but they didn't exactly equip, equip they didn't exactly um, put on a fun show to watch. The Zverev uh, Carreño Busta semifinal was some of the ugliest tennis that I can remember seeing in a long time. Uh, and to a degree, even the final between Zverev and team, even though those are two players I especially like, uh, just didn't have, have had you know a lot of success backing them over the years, and you know just was excited to see them both finally. Uh, you know, have a realize a, a chance at a slam title. Um, it felt like for a lot of that match that neither neither men wanted to win. Uh, so it's 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 kind of uh, I think it's kind of a double edged sword. And I think what we you'll we will eventually bear fruit from this sort of thing, right? Like the U.S. Open uh, overall, um, you know, it, it was entertaining. It was fun. We have team getting his first slam. That that's fantastic. Uh, the women's uh, side of it was probably a little bit more entertaining, I have to say. The reemergence of uh, Vika and Osaka just dominating, uh, and you know to, the class that she put put uh, on the court was awesome to watch. But uh, but on the men's side, we should bear fruit from this. Like down the road, uh, you know, there's not going to be as much uh, as you know these players aren't going to be as tight. Um, and I would especially uh, expect guys like Zverev and Team, uh, maybe even Carreño Busta, uh, to be a little bit less likely to. Um, to play tight in the big mo- in the big moments in the big matches deep into slams, having now gotten a little bit of that experience under their belt. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that as well. So yeah, with with team for example now, I know he's won that sort of first Grand Slam title. It's it's massive in terms of like next time he matches up against Nadal or Djokovic in the final, he's he's going to have that extra layer of confidence. He's not trying to prove himself. He's already. He's now he's already done it. He's kind of got that under his belt, if that makes sense. Maybe not so much with Burrow, but but I think you go back to talking about like the the you know, young players and the emergence of young players in the men. As much as it's sort of maybe not 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 that, that nice to say it, but there's still a little bit of an asterisk over that title because of the absence of. Nadal and Federer and the fact that Djokovic got a default when he was like 1.5 to win the whole tournament so um, that's and he, he hadn't dropped a set in the whole tournament by that stage so um, there's there's that caveat as well obviously it goes down the record books as a team win and, and in fair play to him he, he did win the tournament but you know what it's not really like for life. <laughs> I will argue that his uh, his form in the semifinal against Medvedev was awesome. Yeah, yeah. He 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 really uh, showed us something pretty outstanding in that semifinal. 
Um, but I, I agree with your overall sentiment. There will be an asterisk. And, um, but it should. It should bear fruit. This should uh, give us better quality play for these guys as we get into uh, the same sort of level. I mean, team has made the French Open final now twice. Um, he took a set off of Nadal the second time. Uh, and I would argue that he didn't. He was not really ever in that match uh, for you know, even though he did steal the second set. Um, but now having you know having the experience of getting to the final and winning, um, it should be should create a better better matchup. And unfortunately, because of the way the rankings work out, well, that might not even be our final, even though those are the, the clearly the two best players on clay. Uh, it looks like uh, those guys are probably going to be on the same on the bottom half, and they're going to have to play in the semis. He's, he's probably going to have to beat both of them to win the tournament. Yeah, right, right. That's true, and and you know, and that this is of course assuming. Uh, I have a funny feeling that they're gonna they're gonna drop a, a Stan Vavrinka bomb in the first quarter for Novak, uh, just on the basis of some of the you know they they have such a, a, a wild uh, historical rivalry and. Um, you know, I, I'm not 100% sure. This is a little speculative. This is a little conspiracy theory. But uh, I don't think that the um, the powers that be in the ATP tour are especially happy with Djokovic, given the, uh, uh, the players' union movement that's going on right now. I mean, we can, what we'll do is we'll, we'll get onto the, the French, and maybe part of that will be recapping the US Open. I don't know. Uh, how beneficial reviewing Djokovic's behavior will be to us, but we can maybe talk about it nonetheless. But before we get there, let's, let's talk a little bit about kind of general tennis betting advice. Dan, I know you've been on one of our interview podcasts before as, as have you drew and and we've done the, the Australian open one where we talked a little bit about your approach. I know drew, you mentioned things like conditions, court speed, we're obviously moving from court surfaces here. Like what is, I'm not expecting an answer to to kind of a silver bullet. I, that means that needs more than a podcast. I don't think anyone really wants to give that away. But if if we're talking about approaching how to price a matchup or kind of evaluate two players coming up against each other, what is the the general guidelines for your approach? What advice advice would you give to someone that wants to get a little bit more serious about their betting on tennis? Well, for sure, I I think it's fair to. I think it's important and for not just for tennis, but really for any handicap that you at least start with trying to create your own number. Um, and you can do that by constructing either a simple or complicated algorithm that weights player strengths and weaknesses against each other uh, in some way that you predict a win probability for the given player so that at, at a minimum, you have a starting point to look at the market and you're not just looking at prices and betting on your gut, like, oh, well, there's no way this guy can win. So I don't mind laying that price like that is going to get you in trouble pretty quickly uh, if you're trying to bet tennis, because, um, you know, there are so many matches and, and, and the, the, these markets are mature. They're well bet into. They're relatively sharp. Uh, and you really need to go a step beyond if you're going to manifest an edge uh, and win long term playing tennis. Um, and there are, for the most part, I think the, the market over the last couple of years has done a really, really nice job uh, of fairly pricing underdogs. They used to be a long time ago. That was kind of the, the go-to approach that I had where I would look at uh, every underdog. I would look at my prices. I would, uh, you know, I'd flag five or six, you know, dogs on a given day that I had value on. And I would kind of go through and then kind of in my uh, process think, uh, okay, what's the path to victory? If this player wins a first set, uh, you know, how do they do in set two? Uh, Are we likely to see a tie break that could, you know, you know, reduce the margins from either player in terms of winning probability in a given set? Um, And then, you know, specifically the, uh, you know, the the key things you mentioned, like how what are their overall strengths on this particular court speed? uh, And in particular, if you can micro you know, micro categorize that into, okay, fast clay, medium clay, slow clay, even beyond just this guy is good on clay. Uh, you can manifest a, a, a small edge still in the market, in my opinion. Um, and then weaving in some head to head analysis, and this can be qualitative or quantitative. I don't think there's a right way to do it. Um, but if you have a head to head 
uh, history that you can evaluate. Um, in, in, and I would even go broader and say you can come up with a category of head-to-head. So say, well, how does this, you know, I have value on this underdog in this quarterfinal matchup. He's going against number one, one in the world. Uh, you know, how has he performed on this stage in this type of event at this level against players who are in or around the top of the rankings? Uh, and you can develop a little bit broader of a sample, even if you don't have, uh, you know, a good, you know, like a, a Federer versus Nadal head to head, you know, database to really dive into. Uh, you can create a, a synthetic sample that's a little bit broader by just looking at a, a given player's performance uh, in the similar circumstances. Uh, and then, you know, again, it's it's you have to have some sort of subjectivity here in terms of then how you decide on what you, you know, how you make your play. Like if you have value on an underdog, do you play the money line? Or, you know, if, it, if, you're, if you're saying that the likelihood of this player winning is 25% and the break-even probability is 22 uh, you have a nice edge, but it's only going to win, you know, one out of every four times. Uh, so do you then attack the handicap market or the totals uh, in terms of either sets or games uh, in a way that because, uh, you know, the, the markets are all relatively well correlated. Um, and obviously there's specifics in terms of players who, you know, play longer matches, shorter matches, just given, you know, the strength of their server, uh, you know, their break hold percentages. And, uh, you know, you can synthesize any, any advantage you have on either a favorite or an underdog into some of the uh, derivative markets, I think, fairly well uh, and get a price that's closer to a break even of 50-50 uh, than, uh, than for sure playing some of the long shots. So. Those are some of the things that go into my thought process as I, as I handicap a, a tennis card on a given day. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, given that you have so many matches, you know, especially earlier in these tournaments, uh, you can really be selective uh, and find edges that uh, really suit, uh, you know, suit your process well and uh, help you find success. Yeah, I particularly like that idea of profiling players or scenarios or whatever it might be. Um, Dan, I know you're... I talked earlier about not giving secrets away and stuff like that. I know you're very big on your serve hold percentage. You, you kind of, you make that data available to people. It's, it's central to your approach. So maybe if you could just elaborate to the listeners who might not have read any of your work or anything like that, just about how that metric is calculated and, and how you use that to help find value in the markets. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and first of all, just, yeah, Drew's, Drew's answer to that last question was so thorough and, and, goes in line with a lot of the things that, that I say and do as well. So that's, that's, you know, really good advice that I would completely like 100% back up basically. Um, no, no, no pressure for your answer then. Yeah, Dan. no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, the first thing I would say to anyone is you've got to have a lot of time on your hands because um, the, <laughs> the, the preparing, say for like the, say the first round of a grand slam, is like the best part of a day's work, basically for me. I don't know how long it takes, Drew, but that's 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 for me. That's that's massive. So I'm I'm collating like hold breaks uh, percentages for each player over a given time period, usually uh, a year. I want usually ideally a minimum of fifteen matches, which we're probably not going to have in a year sample size with clay at the moment because of you know the fact that we missed such a massive chunk of the clay season earlier this year. Um, so I might have to extend that to say like twenty nineteen plus. And then that, that, that creates its own problems as well. Because, you know, some young players who haven't played a lot on clay might have really improved in that time period, but that's not necessarily taken into account by the numbers. So then you have to do a little bit more digging and say, well, okay, well, if they've improved this much on hard court, then how, how will that potentially affect their clay level, if that makes sense as well? Um, but as, as Drew said, finding a number is really important in one way, shape or form. I use, like I say, hold, hold break percentages or service points and return points, one percentages to derive a number. Um, now you can use equations for that, or you can use like um, historical data to say, okay, well, if it, it, these X amount of players all had a very similar advantage over their opponent and, and how many of them won, and then you can derive an implied odds percentage from that and a price from that as well. There's, so there's a couple of approaches which which someone can take, but if, as I said earlier, it just takes it, it's it's very time consuming. One 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 to to work out your focus, two to build the model, and then three to process it all on like a daily basis. Um, the market's quite a lot smarter than it used to be. A uh, couple of areas that I think that, it, that it's got a lot smarter at in, is, for example, in in the early rounds of a Grand Slam, like say, not you know the best part of eight nine years ago 
if, if a player had like two five set matches in a row, they they were almost like awful value for the next game, and their opponent was almost always good value. Now the market's a lot more smarter about understanding that effects of accumulation. And also the same with travel as well. You know, like sometimes like you used to see these like mad scenarios where like a player would go and play like Davis Cup in Japan over a weekend and have then have to go and play a, a first round match in France on Tuesday. Uh, and the and the market would not in the opening lines would like not reflect the fact that they've got to travel halfway around the world at that point in time. Um, stuff like that is, but it's got smarter in that respect. Court speed is massive, so it doesn't. It, sometimes we're dealing with quite small samples, though. So what I do in this type of situation is I categorize tournaments into like fast and slow tournaments, looking at deviation from the mean and in terms of like the service points one percentage for each each event, and uh, then you can look at where how a player performs in like a sort of subset of these tournaments. And then you can sort of work out whether a player is good in fast conditions or slower conditions. It doesn't always work. I had Daniel Medvedev down as like dynamite in fast conditions and, and poor in slow conditions. And then he stunned me real bad in the clay season last year. So it doesn't, it's not, it's not guaranteed by any means, but it's, it's really useful to try and work out that, that type of thing. Um, understanding how players play against similar players as well. So just the same as court speed, you can work out like, a group of similar players and then so inst- instead of using like a small sample of head-to-head you can then extend that to like a bigger sample of matches against a similar type of player to the upcoming opponent if that makes sense and head-to-head I mean personally I don't really factor it in a lot because it it almost always is a small sample and it almost always is not necessarily reflective of the current matchup. So like usually like you might see like a three nil, but then you look at it and like the person who's lost was like eighteen when he lost three matches and it was five years ago and now he's like the higher ranked player or something like that. So it's like so difficult to draw relevance from that. So that I mean I would say probably any match where there's like a three plus head to head lead, I would still only factor that in maybe like a quarter of the time would be a ballpark kind of figure. And your the level of data that you have access to Dan I mean I know you've been collating stuff for a long while and there's it's it's right across the the fields in 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 tennis across ATP and and WTA are are you kind of you talk about like day one round one of the the French do you get involved in the live betting stuff does your data enable you to do that is it just something where it's so fast paced that it's it's easier for you to just look at pre-match markets or what's kind of the the level of interest on the live stuff yeah, well, I think Drew mentioned it really well, and that's pick your spots. I think that that's so crucial for like the first two rounds of a slam in particular, when there's just so many matches going on at at the same time. Um, so just look at what you perceive to be like the high value spots on on the given day, and and just dial in on them. I think that's such good advice because I think people can spread themselves very very thin in the early round, which has two problems. One. They struggle to sort of keep keep on top of of what they're doing on a daily basis, but also potentially leads to burnout later on in a tournament as well, which is something that obviously should be avoided. And if there's there might be people that are listening to this that are more used to betting on something like soccer or the NFL, and we have these or, or hockey the, these metrics like expected goals or, or looking at kind of plays in the NFL and, and kind of yards gained, but not translating that into points. Is there a metric for either of you two that you can look at and say, well, this tennis player, they played the better tennis, but they were unlucky to lose? Is there a metric that exists for that? I have a couple that I use. So I look at stuff like um, break point performance and overperformance, underperformance. So for sake of argument, um, usually there's a pretty strong correlation between how how many break points you have as an as an edge over your opponent than the, and and winning the match so usually the, it's logical obviously the, the player with the most break points in the match will, will usually win the match there's a problem in that the way that break points are counted though so for example let give me give me give you a bit of a, a bit of a brief example say a player is love 40 on return and they convert that break point straight away. They go down as one from one on break points, whereas if you 
get the you let the player get back to 30, 40, and then convert, you go down as one from three. So on the sort of basic match statistics thing, it makes it look like that that player's the second player has got more break have more break point chances, but actually they're less dominant because they didn't take the first one that they had. If that makes sense. So um, you've got it's a little bit misleading sometimes the break point stats. So what I look at more is like break point games as well. So like the amount of return games that a player has break points in, I think that's really important as well. And 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 and, and that's that's definitely a further consideration in that. Now, I mean, over, I think I've written about this for, for Pinnacle before, is that over, say, like a three-plus-year period, there's very, very, very few clutch players. So if you're looking at, like, break point over or under performance over, like, a three-plus-year period, players generally fall into a plus or minus 1% between, you know, compared to the expectation based on service and return points one. So generally speaking, over, it's quite a stable figure, this, over, over, um, long period of time, a player will usually save around 2.7-2.8% fewer break points on serve than their service points one percentage, and on the flip side, uh, convert 2.7-2.8% more break point chances than they have their win return points. That's a very stable figure. In the men's and the women's, it's about 23 it's slightly lower. So, So we can then it's not quite a linear uh, relationship, but it's a really good sort of ballpark estimate as to working out our players' uh, cha- potential chances of saving or, or converting a break point. And sometimes you see these wild, wild players in tournaments who like they're running at like twenty percent over break point performance when they win a tournament or get to the semi-finals or the final from like a low rank or something like that. And you think, well, okay, well that's the reason why they got to this later stage because they just ran really hot on break points and then. No surprise, they struggle to back that up in like a longer period of time, and so yeah, there's there's a lot of ways that you can sort of look at match statistics without even necessarily having watched the match to understand that a player was um, lucky or unlucky in that given match. You know, that's a really strong. Yeah, that was a really strong answer from top to bottom, uh, and I completely agree. The most common thing people will look for is how many what, what how many break points were converted, right? And as Dan nailed it. You can have one, you, you could have been competitive in a single return game where you took, you know, you had three break chances early, you took them to deuce and had another three break chances, never converted. And you look at the statistics and you're like, well, my player lost, but he was 0 for 6 on break chances. Well, he was only ever competitive in one return game, you know? And so that, that can be misleading for sure. And it can kind of either confirm or uh, you know, confirm or create a bias uh, in your, you know, your evaluation of your bet or your, your, your own performance. Um, but, uh, what I, what I like to do, um, if you want to make it as simple as possible in terms of, I guess this isn't, this is, I would say simple for those people who are into math, um, as simple as possible to, uh, convert match statistics into, um, you know, some indicator as to whether it was, you know, skill or luck. Uh, because again, going back to Dan's answer, there absolutely is regression to the mean in terms of players who are lucky converting breakpoints, uh, and you know it's not a long-term skill. There's not a lot of evidence to suggest that there's clutch players or unclutch players in terms of uh, you know in terms of you know capitalizing on break chances uh, or getting broken uh, on serve. Uh, even though all your mental biases would tell you that all oh, whenever I bet on this guy, he always chokes or he, you know, he never converts, you know, you know, so the simple way to deal with this mathematically, look at two statistics, uh, return points, one as a percentage and return games, one as a percentage, convert them both to Z scores relative to a median player on the tour, uh, which is basically say, okay, a, a median player on the tour wins, uh, 40% of his return points and 30% of his return games or something like that. Um, and you convert your player's performance to those, you know, to a Z score from the percentage, uh, and then look at, okay, well, my player won 50% of his return points, but only 25% of his return games. That gives you a, a massive Delta over an average, uh, an average match which I think would indicate, okay, this was a very unlucky performance. Uh, and then vice versa, a player only wins 40% of his return points, but 50% of his return games. Uh, now you have uh, you know, a hugely positive delta that would suggest something very lucky happened.
Oh, well, let's, I think we've set like a, a really good foundation here. There was so much to cover in terms of like what tennis is like during COVID or kind of the aftermath of lockdown. Some great answers and kind of individual approaches to, to how you bet on tennis and some insight into people listening to kind of get started and begin to take things a little bit more seriously. But a lot of people listening to this are going to want the the juicy stuff, as it were, which is talking about the outrights for the French Open and, and potentially where some value might be in that regard. We have still got, as as we said throughout, at the time of recording, we've got the Italian Open in Rome that's that's going on. Pinnacle, as yet, hasn't committed to a, a full long list of outrights. <clears throat> because of that, I mean, Sharp guys like you, I'm sure, be be easy to to pick out value if we were to throw an out an outright list up. As as you mentioned, Drew, a lot still unknown about players like Halep and things like that. But what we have got is yes, no markets on the the big three that are going to be getting a lot of, lot of attention in the men's side of the game. Um, Nadal goes without saying is the favourite for the French, one point eight seven seven. Um, Novak second at 3.90 and we've got Dominic team at, at 4.06 so these these three are going to dominate the discussion we'll, we'll get on to the other contenders shortly but in terms of those three at the top of the market what what do you make of those prices are they are they bang on the money to start with or is there something there that you already want to attack I guess I'll jump in first and I I, I personally think that the no is I mean I'm current numbers I agree that these are the three players that have the highest likelihood of winning the tour, the tournament. It's not, and it's not particularly close, but given my numbers, I have value on all three. No. Um, and this is of course, without seeing the draw, this is of course, without seeing uh, Rafa Nadal play uh, a meaningful match of tennis and God, it's been a long time. Um, but in general, um, kind of from a qualitative uh, kind of discussion side of things, uh, Rafa Nadal, absolutely. Uh, you know, owns this tournament, owns this this court. Um, but in general, when he is coming into a French Open, it is on the back of a, uh, a, a two-month cycle. He ramps up his level of play uh, and not only inflicts mental damage on everyone else on tour by beating them over and over again from Monte Carlo to Barcelona to Madrid to Rome. Uh, he then uh, you know, it gets, you know, center court with the huge crowd and, you know, all of the energy and, and just you know, has a huge mental intimidation factor that I think takes a lot of players out of the match. Um, he still has the best weapons, his, you know, his, his, uh, his top spin, you know, his ability to create spin in general is unparalleled in men's tennis in history. Um, and that, you know, will always make him the best clay tennis player of all time. Um, but it would I, I don't know that without the ability to ramp up into uh, his kind of final form where, uh, you know, he uh, you know, he sharpens his game and, and really creates the mental advantages over the rest of the players, if it's fair to price him as high as, uh, you know, odds on favorite here. Um, he also will have to go through Dominic team likely in the semifinals as the two and three seeds respectively. Um, and there are a number of young players on tour. This is going to be a, a much more uh, well-attended field than we saw at the U.S. Open on top of the fact that uh, there are a number of young players who are getting quite, you know, who are, who are coming into, uh, you know, strong clay performances. So it, he could end up with a very much more difficult draw than we've seen in years past on top of the fact that for sure he's going to have to at least likely beat Team and, and Djokovic if he gets to the semifinals and finals respectively. Um, and similarly, uh, you know, Djokovic, he expended a ton of energy in the, to win the Western and Southern Open, uh, which I didn't understand. I didn't, I don't know what his thinking was there. Um, he, I was uh, betting against him in the U S open, um, just in you know, terms of, I had field price against him cause I thought it was a little bit silly that he, uh, you know, was coming off of recovering from COVID and then, you know, expended all this energy the week before the U S open before he had to play all these best of five. Uh, matches um, that worked out in truly lucky fashion. I didn't think that that disqualification was totally warranted, but I'll take it. Um, and at this price, uh, you know, he's still this is his worst surface. This is his worst performing uh, slam. His French Open is is where he is, you know, the least effective um, in terms of 
uh, you know, just having put together a resume of impressive performances. He finally broke through and clinched a career Grand Slam here uh, several years ago in a year where Rafa Nadal really wasn't a factor. Uh, and I would put Djokovic as like the, the price that I see for uh, for no on Djokovic in a final against Nadal. You're it's you're going to have a, a better price than that. So there's really no reason, in my opinion, to take uh, to take yes on Djokovic now. Uh, when if it is a Nadal Djokovic final, which is by far and away the most likely outcome, you're probably going to have a better price on Djokovic at that point. Uh, so, uh, and similarly uh, with Dominic Team, you're going to get a better price on Team in his semifinal versus Nadal than you're going to get betting yes now. Uh, so those that's that's my general sense as to those three key prices, um, which would suggest that there certainly will be value down the board, um, and I've. You know, I'm, I'm interested to see what the market prices Stan Wawrinka. Um, he's been playing uh, a lot of lesser players on clay courts, trying to get his uh, fitness level up. And he is a very dynamic player on clay. He is a past champion here, which I always, always love the, the guys that have a little bit of legacy uh, in the particular tournament. Um, and if his form is sharp here in Rome uh, through the first couple rounds, and then he bows out without taking too much, you know, accumulating too much fatigue or taking too much damage, uh, then I'm keen to back uh, Stan Bavrenka at a price in the ballpark of 25 or 30 to one. Um, and uh, beyond that, there are a bunch of youngsters that I think will be fun to keep an eye on for uh, for a huge price player like Diego Schwartzman. Uh, he, there are shops around where he's in the hundred to one range, which I find to be uh, pretty outrageous given his quality of, uh, you know, his form on clay. Um, he obviously had a crash and burn in the U S open, but, uh, to that same, in the, in the same sentence, he didn't accumulate too much in terms of, uh, fatigue. Uh, similarly, Christian Guerin, I thought he acquitted himself very well in the U S open, a tournament that didn't really suit his strengths at all. Um, but he, you know, he fought back from two zero deficit in his round one, uh, matchup and showed a, a lot of fight and a lot of, kind of a, a deeper understanding of how to win a best of five tennis than you usually see from the younger players on tour. So he will be fun to keep an eye on and where he lands in the draw and what kind of price uh, he gets. I would be interested in Garen at anything better than about 40 or 50 to one. Um, and beyond that, uh, I think there is a kind of a fat middle on the tour that's going to be overpriced. Um, you know, guys like Sissipas, Zverev, Medvedev, um, even Monfils and Andy Murray and Berrettini, Marin Cilic, Chor, uh, Borna Cioric, uh, Milos Raonic for that matter. Uh, I don't think any of those guys have a reasonable chance to make a run here, but they're going to be priced in the market like they have 4 or 5%. So if you can eliminate a lot of those guys, and uh, you can probably winnow, winnow a handful of uh, plus EV plays in the futures market on the men's side. Um, but at the current prices, I'm not interested in any of the. I'm, I'm interested in no more than I am in yes on all three of these guys at the top. Yeah, you have to say that the no option does jump out on those. I'm guessing, Dan, you're you're kind of sharing similar similar sentiments in that regard. Yes and no. Um, first of all, the no on uh, Drew said about the no on team and Djokovic because of the the, the price that they're likely to be against Nadal in the final. Yeah, I think that that's really really accurate. And I while Drew was talking, I bought up the price of Team versus Nadal last year in in the final, and Team was. Uh, Looks like closing price of four point nine eight. So yeah, that's for the final. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I think the only reason why you wouldn't um, do the you know the no on on that is just the fact that if you, if you think that Nadal is like extremely vulnerable and would would have been knocked out in advance anyway, but then you could just like lay him anyway. So that's fine. That's fine too. I mean, statistically speaking, Nadal is like so far above the field if we're looking at say like 18 months clay data it's, it's ridiculous so like if you imagine if you're composing a tweet for example you might write Nadal three greater than arrows greater than Djokovic with one <laughs> single greater than arrows to team if that makes sense That'd be that, that sort of thing um, so like I mean Nadal as well I was talking about we talked a bit about like fast clay slow clay type thing as earlier and I think that Nadal is probably a lot better on slower clay than he is on faster clay. So like if you can compare his record in Rome and Madrid, which are probably the two of the faster clay big tournaments, and then compare that to, say, like uh, 
Monte Carlo and, and Roland Garros, you see it's like he's virtually unbeatable on these like slower clay tournaments, you know. Uh, and I think that, that that that's that's something that should be taken into account as well. And while he hasn't, like as Drew said, he hasn't had that time to sort of beat all his opponents in these warm-up events first, I still think that I find it so difficult to to see past Nadal. And the fact that Nadal and Djokovic are ballpark 75% in the outright markets between them shows quite how difficult the task is for for the remaining players on the tour, I, I agree that the likes of Sitsipas and uh, Medvedev and Zverev are kind of probably quite overrated by the market. And Sitsipas is an interesting one because, like, a lot of people think that he's like this future Grand Slam winner, and he may well be, but he's going to have to improve a lot on return to get, get that far. So, if you look at like historical data of players. Pretty much every Grand Slam winner in the men's side is, I can't remember the exact figures, I did this research a long time ago, but it was like, I think they, they, they all broke over 22% on that given surface in the preceding year. For, and it goes back like over a decade. And he doesn't do that. So he's going to have to either break the trend or, or get a lot better on return for him to, to, to win a Grand Slam. And I, I'm unconvinced about him at the moment. Uh, as, as far as like crazy price underdogs go, I quite like Casper Ruud, um, who's you know in places like over like 150 to one. Um, I think his his stats uh, are really quite nice on clay. Uh, if you're looking at combined service return points one on clay in the last 18 months, he actually rates seventh on tour. Um, albeit against perhaps not the greatest calibre of opposition, but he's got a bunch of wins in against players in that sort of 20 to 50 ranking bracket, and he's probably going to have to get past a few of, of them in in order to get to the later stages in, in the French Open. So he's perhaps a, a live long shot, maybe. There's one other guy I forgot to mention that I'd love to bring up before we move off the men, and uh, it's Andre Rublev. He did an interesting thing last year where rather than play um, on the U.S. hard court swing, uh, he went and did the uh, the secondary uh, European clay swing to try to work on his clay game. And he did fairly well. Uh, you know, as you look across his last 10 clay performances, uh, he has losses to Dominic Team and uh, Nicholas Bajlisvili. Those are then they were both uh, relatively competitive matches, I felt. Um, the team match, I guess, wasn't, you know, it, it, he took, he took team to seven, five in the first set, which was actually quite, quite, a, quite impressive. Um, but overall, I think, um, uh, he stepped up his clay game a lot and, uh, his performance at the U S open was pretty impressive until he ran into a white hot, uh, Daniel Medvedev who has his number. Um, he looked, uh, a lot stronger than I thought he was going to look in this tournament. And there are places around where he's in the 66 to one range, which I think is, uh, not a fair price given his quality. He actually rates one higher than Rude on that metric as well, sixth in terms of the combined service return points one. So the numbers definitely back up that as well. Yeah, and of course, any of the, the prices there, it would be foolish not to recommend people line shopping and, and finding the best possible price that they can. Um, and we'll see what they, they do hit the board at, at Pinnacle. But one of the other things is obviously we can now move on to the women. And as I said, we, we don't have any women's outrights prices out there. But for both of you, again, if there's if there's prices kind of you'd be looking to bet at or a number that you'd be happy with, feel free to to quote that. But obviously, we had Osaka dominated the US Open. We've mentioned a couple of times Halep is the, the market consensus seems to have Halep at the, the top of the betting. And we've still got a a fair way of, of event or matches to go before we can assess whether that is, is kind of the right move. Um, but in terms of the women and the outrights, is there anything that you're looking for coming up and, and potential value plays for you? Um, I'll go to you first, Dan. Yeah. Okay. So obviously we've spoken a bit about um, the Halep and the fact that, yeah, she's probably going to be targeting this tournament and uh both her and Kiki Burton's deliberately skipped the US Open so that they could prepare and stay in Europe for, for this. And obviously Halep's come off that that tournament win in Prague where she only played Elise Mertens out of any player ranked in the top 40. So it's difficult to really read too much into that. Obviously she got the job done, but she also dropped a couple of sets early doors against a couple of lower-ranked players too. 
Um, she ranks at the top in terms of 18-month combined service and return points, one percentage on clay, which isn't a massive surprise. Um, but there's, there's a couple of kind of shock names in that in that top 10 that might be of interest to a few people. Um, the one really stands out is Elena Rybakina, who has a bunch of wins on clay, but not really against a high calibre of opposition. She's never actually played a top 20 player on clay in a competitive match. But uh, her numbers are excellent in the matches that she's played in. So it'd be really, really interesting to see how she gets on in um, Rome this week. She she had a really good win yesterday against Alexandrova, who who's probably doesn't do as well on clay as she does on other surfaces. But now uh, Rybakina matches up against Biskova tomorrow and potentially with a round three against Petra Martic and a round four against Halep in Rome. So that would be really interesting to see how far she can get perhaps if she can test Halep in, in, in the, the fourth round. But the, the problem is, obviously, if she beats Halep in the fourth round, the price will probably go on her. There's oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a double, double-edged sword, that one. Um, a couple of other players that, that are in that sort of top 10 in terms of numbers-wise, uh, Vondrasova, Marquez Vondrasova, but she's been very, very poor post-lockdown and, and generally underwhelming this year. And, and and that's a that's a problem for me, but it's a shame because I actually sort of she, pegged her as a massive massive talent. Obviously, she was the uh, beaten finalist last year as well, so um, that's that, that's something to consider. Her numbers on clay last year were, were superb. She also reached the quarterfinals of Rome and uh, lost in the final of a, a warm up event in Istanbul as well. So she. She does. She does have a lot of clay pedigree, but I think the market would be quite scared of her based on sort of the results that she's had in a few of the warm-up exhibition tournaments and then post-lockdown as well, where she's barely been able to win a match, and despite being a heavy favourite in pretty much every match that she's played in. Um, and another another player who who ranks quite well at the moment, a young player with with some high potential, is Diana Gastremska as well. Uh, so for so the few young players in, in the top. 10 in that terms of metric rankings that the are probably worth keeping an eye on. Uh be interesting to see how Victoria Azarenka is priced up based on the fact that she, you know, she she was superb at the Western and Southern Open and then again in um New York again at the US. Um but it's interesting because I always sort of had her not as a top five clay player anyway at her peak. Uh, and so perhaps there might be a bit of a propensity for the market to overvalue her. Uh, in the current uh, next sort of month or so, based on the fact that, that, that she's coming off like some fantastic performances on hardcore, which were, was always her best surface when she was at her peak, you know, world, world ranked number one, say like eight years ago. Uh, and I think that there's potential for like a market overreaction based on her, her hardcore performances, basically, in that situation. Before I uh, before I hand over to you, Joe, I just had a quick look on a, a price comparison website. As a ranker across the board, you've got fourteen to one, twenty-five to one, and as high as forty to one. So I think that tells the story about the market not really sure sure what to do with her at the moment. Is that is that one you're looking to watch out for, Drew? Is there is there others in the list that could be the potential value for you? Oh, very much looking elsewhere. I agreed with Dan's take. I never had her rated especially highly as a clay player, and I have a I mean, my general sense is that this swing through the European tour for her is an opportunity to collect some paychecks as opposed to really compete for titles. Um, I also had my eye on Rabakina. I think that was a nice, uh, uh, a nice look there from Dan. And I also think, uh, I guess it's important to mention that the returning, uh, the, uh, the returning champ out of the field, no Ash Barty in this one. Um, people may be surprised by that, but she will not be uh, trying to defend her title at the French Open. Uh, and the kind of the hot player of the moment, um, Osaka, uh, I really don't uh, rate her clay performances especially highly at all. She's kind of a, a hard court only uh, for me in terms of backing. So um, she's going to be near the top of the board just on the basis of you know recency, um, but uh, she'll be worth um, betting against as well, I believe. So I think, uh, there will, you know, that the important aspects to kind of understand are we're, the decision-making by Halep, the decision-making by, um, by Burton's, uh, these are your two, two of your kind of premier clay specialists for lack of a better word, uh, across the women's tour. Um, do they, you know, do they, were the, were their decisions to stay in Europe, 
uh, warranted? And uh, is that the differentiating factor for them? Uh, important, in my opinion, for Kiki Burton's to make a run here in Rome and or win this tournament uh, to kind of prove that she still has the same level we saw from her at times last season um, because she really she hasn't played at all relative to Halep, who at least, uh, you know, she won in Prague last week, not really having played anyone. But uh, uh, I'd like to see Burton's show us that she still has the goods um, because, again, you know, she's kind of near the top of some of these markets. And uh, I would expect if she does not uh, make a run here and, and put some match play under her under her belt, she's going to be uh, very, very uh, tough to back at the French Open. Well, I think our time's just about up for today. Um, I mean, I'm certainly glad to be back talking about tennis. Great to be chatting to you two again. So thank you both for coming on and, and helping our listeners with the upcoming French Open. Absolutely. Take care, guys. Yeah, thanks very much. Really enjoyed it. Great to chat as always. And thank you to everyone for listening. If you do want to hear more from Dan and Drew, then you'll find all the relevant links in the description of this podcast. You can also head to Pinnacle's betting resources to learn more about betting. And of course, follow us on Twitter with the handle at Pinnacle. All of the latest tennis odds are available on Pinnacle.com. So do take a look, get involved in the action. But as always, please gamble responsibly. 